Hello and welcome to episode 87 of The Dive Down, a Magic the Gathering podcast for the casual spike focused on the latest decks, trends, and strategies in modern and pioneer. My name is Stanislav here in Chicago, and with me on the line from Denver, Colorado, is the one and only Shane Beeps. Stanislav, why are you doing like you're Terry Gross? I just I just started talking in an NPR voice and now I can't stop. Thought you're like gonna you know interview me like you're Terry Gross. This is fresh air. I'm a celebrity, but you're gonna ask me about like my family history and my transition from Russia to the burbs of New York. Yes, I know you were expelled by the Cossacks in the late nineteenth century. It was rough. Also with us, the Godfather, Dave Harbarger. Hi, it's Kai Rizdal here with Marketplace from NPR. Dave, are you are you like a Kai Rizdal? Are you more like an Ari Shapiro? I'm a Kai Stan. Same. Yeah. He's so California. <laughs> this is Marketplace. You can hear him smiling. You know, sometimes I'll like play the game where I'll Google up the the names of NPR people just to see what they look like. And it's it's never what I expect, except with Kai Rizdal, who looks like exactly what you would expect. What about Hannah Jaffe Waltz? There's that weird Red Hot Chili Peppers song called Kai California that everybody forgets about. It's not very not good, just like the rest of Red Hot Chili Peppers songs. Wow, we just lost dozens of listeners, Dave. We lost the peppers. We lost Flea. On this week's episode, we're going to take on something of a new topic for us. We're just experimenting every day here. Today we're going to talk about something kind of sort of related to MTG finance. Now we're not exactly specking on prices. We're not going to try to move the market. Rather, we're going to try to round up the weird and unique opportunity offered by the latest master set, Double Masters, the latest set to come out after they said they were retiring master sets altogether. And we're going to talk about cards and decks that may have or may not have gotten a bit cheaper thanks to reprints, decks that may have even gotten more expensive under the release of 2XM, and more as we try to dissect the impact on the MTG market of a set that's so full of modern and legacy staples. I like to call it post-Ultimate Masters. Hey, we thought we'd mix it up a little bit. You know, give us give a new topic, talk about how we look for and buy cards, how maybe you can sell cards, how you think about budgeting and magic, just kind of a general financial conversation between friends who buy too many magic cards yeah, and then tune in for our bonus episode where, because we're old, we're going to talk about homeowner's insurance. <laughs> Sleeve, heave, believe. Farmers. You can't believe how, how much they, they... We got some hail. They raised it $200. It's so cool that all three of us have mortgages. Just one more thing we have in common. But first, it's time for everyone's favorite part of the show. It's definitely my favorite part of the show. It's housekeeping. We got to go, we got to go straight to the Patreon plug because we don't have any new patrons. We have no new reviews. People, you got to get at us, get in those reviews. I'm feeling bad about myself. And I look at those to, to, to remember why I do this podcast. Wow. And it's, and it's not just to see Stan and Dave. It's not? <laughs> Shane, there's some real desperate energy coming off of you right now. <laughs> I'm going to advise you to not make any financial decisions during the course of this podcast. And uh, yeah, and listeners, hey, we love you. Okay. Keep doing what you're doing. You don't want to join Patreon? That's fine. You do want to join the Patreon? You can find us at patreon.com slash the dive down. You can get access to the best little chat in all of cyberspace on our secret Slack server if you join up. And that's it. It might be the best magic chat that's on Slack specifically. 
it's really it's the only magic chat that I've stuck with. I've I have been involved in many discords and I've been involved in you know various small communities and I usually have like a hangout in there for a while, feel it out, kind of bail. This one, this one I've stuck with. Yeah. Because the people rule. Yeah. Also, if you'd like to support the show by playing magic, you can check us out via Mana Traders. If you subscribe for a brand new Mana Traders account, the Magic Online rental service you may have heard of. Using code the dive down all one word, you get 20% off your first three months of a Mana Trader subscription. That's one fifth. 20%, baby. That's one fifth. That's good. <laughs> Do it. And also, we have kind of a fun announcement in, in honor and light of this Double Masters themed episode. We're doing our very first ever dive down giveaway. Yeah, we just want to get weird, try something fun, see what happens. Stan. Why don't you tell the listeners about the details of the first ever dive down giveaway? Well, here's a detail I learned. It has to be no purchase necessary so that we don't get arrested by Interpol. Is this like a Captain Crunch thing where it's like it's a send in the box top or a proof of purchase or the or or a self-addressed stamp envelope? Yeah. And then eight months later, when you're so old that you don't care about Captain Crunch anymore, you'll get back a hat. So you send us a self-addressed stamp envelope. <laughs> I was thinking that people have to send us like 20 MSRPs from the booster packs they purchased for Double Masters. But no, it's going to be even easier than that. We're giving away one Double Masters VIP booster pack. The one that costs like 100 bucks and comes with a bunch of foils and, and, and basic lands. I think the basic lands are also foil. I'm not sure. I haven't bought one. I just hear about them. The pack's foil. The cards are foil. The, to- the token's foil. The like the rules card, little ad cards foil. It's foil. We're giving it away. And the way you enter to win is by first following us on Twitter so that we can actually DM you and retweeting our weekly promotional tweet about this episode. So by the time you've heard this episode, assuming it's like after 10 a.m. Central Time on Friday of this week, the day this episode comes out, Find us on Twitter, twitter.com slash the dive down. Find the tweet. Give us a follow if you haven't already. Hit the retweet button and you're entered to win. And I think probably for next week's episode, we'll actually announce the winner. So you really only have like a few days to enter. So act fast. Don't delay. Oh, yeah, you're right. Get cards. Yeah, you have like three days. Yeah, it'll be sweet. I'll get to like finally find out someone's address. I can't win that, right? No. Okay. Wow. Rusty Shackelford has the exact same Colorado address as Shane Beeps. <laughs> So weird. Shane Beefs. <laughs> it's a cousin. Huh. He, he, he lives next door. All right. So that's that's housekeeping. That's our giveaway for this week. Excited to give a, give a pack, a promo pack to someone. I'm just going to keep talking. Shane, you want to say something, though? <clears throat> Stan, our, our existing followers, all they have to do is retweet, right? Yes. Yes. Everyone is welcome to, to participate. Current patrons, future patrons. New followers, existing followers. Do you have to be 18 to enter? I don't know. They say that on TV sometimes. No purchase necessary. That's the main thing. Listen, if you're if you're not 18, just don't tell me. The suits are really going to be breathing down my neck if we don't make that clear, okay? If I can't see it, it's not illegal. Perfect. Stan, you're on the breakdown news desk, right? That's right. Dateline, August 17th. Today we've got two Pioneer Challenge results. We were hoping to talk about the Pioneer mocks, but as of right now, it's not published. Don't bring it up. I'm really annoyed about this. 
How could they? Because we, we know who won, and we even know the second place deck. And I'll, I'll mention them very, very briefly as we go through the breakdown, but we don't have the actual like top 32 data. But even though today's episode isn't technically focused on Pioneer, I kept thinking about the format after last week's show and really wanted to take a look at week two results for a couple of reasons. First, for the sake of science, I'm curious to see what kind of week over week shifts we would see in post-band Pioneer. Because we all know week one results seldom are indicative of an actual solved format. So being able to track that evolution, I thought might be a fun experiment. But also, and this one is a little bit more selfish, to be perfectly honest, I'm still on the lookout for a deck that looks appealing to me, Stanislav. And ideally, you know, I'm trying to find something that's both competitive and fun to play, as opposed to something like Is It in Soul, which I think is very fun to play, but not particularly competitive right now. So perhaps, to no one's surprise, I, I couldn't help myself, and I made some pivot tables of the 64 decks that came in top 32 across the two Pioneer Challenges over the weekend. And for this week's episode, I'm looking at overall meta share from these two challenge events, and then I'm also going to look at the two top eights. We'll see what, if anything, continues to dominate week over week, or if there are any surprises that maybe we can learn from as this metagame evolves. Dan, I like that you're like saying, like, I'm going to look at, like, we're just, we're just going to hang out and then the sidelines. Well, Stan looks at this data, everybody. Yep, this is what I'm doing. That's Bush. Is that a duff? Keep rolling, Stan. It's, it's just a bubbly. I don't know what you guys are talking about. Yeah, I'm going to report what I saw. Feel free to chime in. I, I actually put in some questions for you guys to kind of have your own knee-jerk reactions. We'll see what happens. Oh, thanks, Dan. We're always good at jerky reactions, so. So as we're looking at the total weekend results, we got 64 decks. In terms of this, you know, slice of meta share, the most popular deck from the weekend appears to be Mono Green Planeswalkers. Dun, dun, dun. 17.2%. Second place, a little bit of a curveball, Jund Aristocrats, 14.1%. Yeah, shocking. A lot of hype from LSV and Andrew Beckstrom, though. So Stan, this is this is similar to the deck we talked about last week, right? Which is like that Bolus's Citadel sacrifice deck. But that seems like it's adding Mayhem Devil. It didn't have that last week, right? I'm not sure if it had it last week, but it is definitely playing it now. And it's looking a little bit more like that Jund Sack food deck from Standard and Historic. Mm-hmm. In third place in terms of popularity was Niftalite with 10.9%, followed by Jeskai Luca, mm. 7.8%. And then, you know, sharing fifth place. I was going to say, that marks our top 50%, those four decks, by the way. Correct. Yeah, Mono Green, Jund, Niv, and Jeskai. That's our first 50. And then those are four, uh, you know, tied for fifth place, Azori's Control and Esper Control, each with 6.3%. Wow. So let's just quick recaps of what our actually top five decks are. Mono Green Ramp, really strong weekend. Not only in sheer numbers of top 32 appearances, but it also put up strong results in top eight. I'll go over that in just a second. And I wonder if perhaps the deck was able to leverage some of the success it had this weekend because everyone was gunning for Niv to Light after last week, you know, and maybe as people are gunning for Mono Green next week, we might see more Pithing Needles or Artifact Hate or even Land Destruction effects. But because everyone was trying to deal with Niv, Mono Green was able to kind of sneak in there. Shane, what do you think? Being a mono green men, your your deck is on top this week, somewhat resoundingly, convincingly. Let's say. I mean, it's just it's just a good, flexible deck. It's going to handle a lot of 
stuff that goes lower to the ground. And it's somewhat hard to go over the top of, but not impossible. Like this, I think that Jeskai Luca would actually probably be pretty good against it, but I'm not certain. Uh, we can talk more about Jeskai Luca in a second, but I think it's just an all around both fast and powerful and stable deck that has a lot of like wishboard plans with Karn and just can run a lot of powerful planeswalkers to handle either the battlefield or take you know, Pithing Needle away, a f- powerful effects on the other side of the battlefield. So you stick a Pithing Needle naming Luca pretty early on. The opponent's not very happy about that. You know, there's just a lot of options. So good players can run well with it. Mm-hmm. Checks out. Junt. This to me felt like the breakout deck of the weekend, even though we saw, you know, some early versions of it last week. Like I mentioned, it's vaguely reminiscent of the Junt food deck in Standard and Historic, although I think it may have been like banned out of one or both formats. Well, the Junt Junt food deck, remember, had a really specific engine in it, right, which was the cat oven combo, I think was a big part of that. I'm not a standard person. And this deck is really much closer to something like a Rally the Ancestors deck. I think when you really look at what the mana, what the creatures are doing, what's going on, doesn't have Rally as an engine, of course. What it has instead as an engine card is Bolus's Citadel, which is a extremely interesting card <laughs> that I think is worth talking about a little bit. But I, this is a, more of like a Blood Artisty kind of deck than it is uh, I think that other engine. Totally. This deck wants to flood the board with a bunch of cheap creatures and tokens. Um, and then it sacrifices a bunch of those, you know, small tokens or creatures to things like Priest of Forgotten Gods, Will Strider, or Bolus of Citadel. And then it also accrues a bunch of extra value from those sack creatures using Zulaport Cutthroat, which is your Blood Artist replacement. Also has Catacomb Sifter, which kind of does a Viserys Seer impression. Mm-hmm. And Mayhem Devil does a Blood Artist impression as well it's it's expensive you know it's one more mana it also is a three three and deals one damage to any target instead of the other thing yeah but so you know i've played aristocrat strategies here and there but i'll admit like it's kind of hard for me to assess like when and why a deck like this is powerful and i wonder if you guys have any theories about what maybe made aristocrats a very viable answer to some of the big mana or mid-range or even control decks that were you know running the show last week it doesn't really care you know what i mean it's like it's sort of a combo deck right so one it doesn't care about any point removal right almost certainly like very little point removal matters against it against certain certain creatures you want to stick sure but you know unless it's running into a sweeper and i'm sure there are ways to mitigate the impact of sweepers for this deck or you just thought sees them out of their hands um, before they can actually get their good spells off yeah, I think it's just it's something that's going to just have resiliency because it's trying to reach a certain end game point that a lot of decks are going to have some trouble interacting with besides, you know, sweepers and other things that the this deck can interact with before they can even be cast. That's my thought. I haven't played it. Yeah, I mean it's like a sort of non-interactive creature combo. Um good if there's only there's not many sweepers and a lot of um you know people trying to go big because they can still go off even after you get a couple of your big pieces out so well i hate to say this but it's not like there's no sweepers in the format when like esper control runs wraths azori's control runs wraths luca i think runs wraths i think even niv can like wish to light for for a wrath yeah it's got the red white one that i forget the name of 
suddenly. Clarion call. Uh, it's not that one. It's got the deafening clarion. No, no. It's got it's got aura devastation sometimes, which it cannot search for. And then this list that I'm looking at doesn't have it. Hang on one second. It's it's one that has creatures deal their power to themselves. Mm, stop hitting yourself. It's called Solar Blaze. Is mm. the card oh, that yeah. they they use as a wrath. Well, I think also, Stan, you can put enough pressure on a control opponent to like make them have to cast a sweeper and then rebuild pretty easily right. with 32 creatures and four collected companies and whatnot. And you're also doing damage along the way because you, if, you know, if you get a one sacrifice engine going, something like that. So cool. Yeah, Th- this looks I mean, like a fun deck. Like I mentioned, a lot of hype from LSV on this deck and Andrew Backstrom supposedly put in a bunch of work. I think LSV name checked Josh Utter Layton even on this deck while last week. So there are a bunch of people, big magic brains working on it. Up next, Niv with nearly 11% or seven decks. Still pretty popular and good. We talked about the deck a lot last week. Apparently it took a hit week over week. So, you know, there's that churn that we were talking about or at least anticipating. Still a presence that you have to respect, but maybe it's not the end-all, be-all, tier zero after all. Any surprise or delight from you guys? That it like dropped from first place to seemingly third place. Neither surprise nor delight. Glad it's still competitive. Glad it's not at the top. That's fine. All right. Jeskai Luca, five copies across the top 32s. Remember Fires of Invention? Well, it's kind of back. It also kind of never left, but also kind of sort of disappeared. And it turns out now it's the fourth most popular deck of the weekend, despite no real changes to the deck list since we dove into it earlier this summer. Here's the thing. These are Yorian decks, so they're relatively slow and they really want to reach the late game to do their thing. And even though the format isn't particularly aggressive at the moment, in my opinion, I'm a little surprised to see the deck counting on Wraths and Planeswalkers and an Oath of Chandra putting up so many copies in a field full of Ramp and Niv-Misset. And it kind of makes me wonder, like, is this just Tron doing Tron things? This deck absolutely annihilates Niv-Misset. That's why it's doing so well. Any additional on why? Nihilate Sniff? Well, so it can, you know, Mr. Steal Your Permanence uh, just does really good work. So just Niv, Niv it, it can go over the top of the over-the-top mid-range deck. So it's the ultimate control mid-range. Tap out control, as we discussed a lot in that episode. And speaking of control, Stan, you got a couple of control decks to talk about. Yeah, I got a pair of them, starting with Esper Control. This is another Yorion deck that's basically blue-white splashing black for interaction. It's got eight Thoughtseize effects, including four Thought Erasure, and a boatload of removal between Fatal Push, Trial of Ambition, Oath of Kaya, and Elspeth Conquers Death. Gotta say, I like this deck a lot, and would probably pick it over Jeskai Luka as kind of the go-to control deck for this specific metagame. Even though it's not running any counterspells, it looks like a major pain in the butt to play against, I think. This list could have some, you know, staying power as long as Yorion remains good, and as long as these Edict effects and spot removal cards stay relevant in the format and then how about how about the uh the companion to this one blue white yeah this is the counterspell deck in addition to swapping hand disruption for blue spells this deck also gets to run dig through time which esper sort of can't i feel like the esper deck doesn't have a ton of tools to fill up the graveyard the way this one does but we also see shark typhoons here as both a mana sink and an occasional wind condition and the cool thing that i'm seeing this week is that Pioneer is in this position right now where you can basically run any type of control deck that you want. So, like, if you want to play Draw Go, you have UW. If you want to tap out for Big Walkers, you can play Jeskai. If you want to, you know, 
play hand disruption or just classic spot removal, there's Esper. Well, let's talk about that top eight winners metagame because I was just trying to get a sense of how well the control decks really did going into this, speaking of that. So Stan, in our normal dive-down fashion, took a look at what made it into the top eights combined across the two tournaments. And uh, I'll let you go through the meta shares, Stan. But I don't think anybody's going to be surprised to hear that Mono Green Planeswalkers was 31% of the decks in the combined top eights. That's right. There were five copies of Mono Green Walkers in the 16 decks that made top eight this weekend, in challenges at least. On Saturday, first place, Teamer Reclamation. We didn't really mention this one. Waiting for it to get broken. I mean, we, we're kind of waiting for Reclamation to get broken in Pioneer. I don't know if this is the deck that is broken, but... Um, not surprised to see it end up at the top. It's one of the most powerful cards in the format. Only two copies of Teamer Wreck across the weekend in top 32s. And one of them is this first place list. Second place was Mono Green. Third place, Mono Black. Fourth place, Esper Control. Fifth place, Mono Green. Sixth place was Naya Burn. Seventh place, we had that Jund Aristocrats deck. And eighth place on Saturday, Esper Control. And this doesn't really need to be said, right? But when you say mono green, we're always talking about mono green walkers, not mono green stompy, right? Yes, sir. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, I don't think I saw any mono green stompy in the two challenges. So one thing I do want to point out here, we actually saw some aggro decks in this top eight, even though they were relatively unpopular over the course of the weekend. But between mono black, Naya burn, and on Sunday, we had Orzhov Auras in the top eight as well. Like, we saw some aggro decks push through, but I have some theories about why they might be bad. I'll mention that in a second. On Sunday, first place, Niftalite. Second place and third place, Mono Green Walkers. On fourth place on Sunday, Esper Control. Fifth place, Orzhov Auras. Sixth place, Niftalite. Seventh place, Jund. And eighth place, Mono Green. So 50% of the top eight metagame was Mono Green Planeswalker and Esper Control. Good. I like it. Well, so so what? Let's talk about this, right? So one thing we were talking about today, Stan, was one of the issues of diagnosing the refound power of Mono Green Planeswalkers and also Niptolite is that Essentially, they unbanned Oath of Nyssa and then banned Combo within a very short time period. That doesn't really allow us to diagnose if Oath of Nyssa is the secret sauce or if the decks would have been just fine without it or a similar power level. So it's it's kind of easy to point to oh, Oath of Nyssa. That wasn't a very safe unban. But at the same time, we took Combo out of the format, which was preying on Niftalite and Monogreen Planeswalkers as the decks set themselves up. And Monogreen's Planeswalkers essentially had nothing to do against something like Demir Inverter besides hopefully get a God Pharaoh statue on the board before the deck could do anything, which was very hard to do. So I guess we don't really know. Like, the, I mean, the decks are quite good, especially Monogreen Planeswalkers right now. But I'm curious if it's overpowered. If I'm sure there are angles of attack against it because I played the deck and there's plenty of ways to lose with it. But I'm, I'm curious if Oath of Nyssa is going to be identified as a problem card. My gut, honestly, I don't think so. I feel like people are mostly going to feel like it's pretty safe. It's a role player in both of the decks. You know, after playing Niv last week, it's very good. You can do little mini abusive things with it to draw extra cards and whatever, which is nice to be able to do in a mid-range deck. But it's not like every 
game where I, I double drew Oath of Nyssa, I felt like I was going to kill it. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's definitely a weird data point that we can't fully analyze unless we start testing these decks without Oath against like the rest of the field why would i why would i do that no reason i'm not sure seems foolish it is interesting to me that you know when when oath was unbanned everyone sort of shrugged because they felt like a it shouldn't have been banned in the first place and b it probably wouldn't be super impactful and now like at least here on the pod we're talking about was it maybe unsafe to unban after all and like how much context matters in terms of like metagame forces for just like this dinky little and cantripic enchantment yeah I got to say the big takeaway for me with this top top 16 decks that we're looking at is Jeskai Luka did not close. No. At all. There's not a single copy here. I, I haven't, I can't see what the, the win percentages of the deck across the, the f- results that we have from what we can tell, but it did not close. It didn't get a single slot after being the fourth most popular deck across both events. Yeah. I feel like Jeskai Luka probably has more holes in its strategy like more issues more holes in the armor perhaps that could be exploited than some of these other decks that are more well-rounded like certainly it's going to be able to go over the top of something like niv perhaps or maybe even green walkers i don't know because i'm not good at these styles of decks um, but there, there's a lot of avenues of attack on lower to the ground decks against the jeskai luka decks i think yeah speaking of one of we barely talked about aggro in the top 32, but here we have one copy of Mono Black, Naya Burn, and Orzov. So at least it was somewhat present. And I also know that Boros Feather came in second in the mocks. Read that on Twitter. Did you? I thought that I saw the pilot said that they lost in the quarters, not that they lost in the finals. So they would have come in top eight, but seventh or eighth place. Maybe maybe I misread the tweet. Yeah, I think it was. I think it was that they made it to the first round and lost. But still, the person who piloted this, who I think's name is Broadstream or Broadband, they were um, very enthusiastic about the deck and said that they were sad that most more people weren't playing it so that they could workshop it yeah. with people. I also read that Mono Green Walkers won the mocks, piloted by Doomwake. Yeah. Hey, keep your eyes on Doomwake if you're not already. I mean, I think most people who play on MTGO are that unstoppable lately. We have said their name every week, I feel like. It is every week. And, you know, I, there was the Mana Traders tournament where they ate one to the Swiss, like they were far ahead of everybody else and came in second with Black Red Prowess. Like Doomwake is all over Man- Magic Online right now. Yeah. So here's my theory on aggro. We have these three different styles of control between Luca, Esper, and Azorius. And I feel like if your aggro deck can like somehow beat one of those styles, the other two will beat you up. And it makes it really hard for some of these aggro strategies, whether it's Feather or Mono Black or Burn, to kind of navigate this wide control field, which is maybe what's like pushing people to some of these like big mana or mid-range strategies to deal with like how diverse and powerful control is in the metagame right now. Yeah, I can see that. I mean, aggro has a problem with Niv too, right? And aggro likely has a little bit of a problem with the Jund deck just because unless you're spirits you can't attack through them so there's probably some other things going on there too with decks that just have uh fields that are hard for you to deal with or decks that have a ton of removal and honestly part of what might be going on with niv losing a little bit of meta share too is that if there aren't a lot of creature decks floating around niv doesn't have much to do with its cards in the first uh before sideboarding right because it is a deck that's full of a lot of removal like a mid-range deck tends to be so um, that's another thing to think about what's going on with the sh- kind of shifts in the percentages this week. So 
Just to take us out of this breakdown, last week we were talking about Niv being like this big mid-range strategy at the top, and whenever something like that happens to a metagame, usually it's indicative that there can be solutions, there, something can churn, and we're starting to see that, a little bit at least, that you know, Niv was definitely super popular last week, now it's still good, a little less popular. What do you guys predict happens when the metagame starts to have slower control style decks at the top, whether it's something like Drago with Azorius or something like Tap Out Control with Jeskai? So one thing I found interesting was in the latest league dump, there were like nine different versions of successful red-based aggressive decks. And I think that there are a lot of ways to be still be building and succeeding with these decks. And I think that uh, players who are decent with them can certainly have perfectly good matchups against like the truly slow decks that aren't designed entirely around beating them when the, when control decks have to account for other control decks for green planeswalker decks for uh, niv you know, for aristocrat style decks then it, it, there can be openings for aggressive decks to get in under them and i think that we don't see a ton of red here or red based aggressive decks but there are i think plenty of opportunities for them to spike a tournament and show up in pretty good numbers I would say that I would start keeping eyes on mono black aggro too, right? Because any any control deck that relies on sweepers gets frustrated by aggro decks that can just replay all their cards from their graveyard. Mm-hmm. So something to think about. We're getting to the point too where mono black doesn't necessarily have to play the mono black mirror expectation game so i'm curious if they're these lists might subtly change i think people are still running these mono black lists that are tuned for beating mono black and i'm not sure they need to and they might recognize that so it's like you know one of the things that i'll notice is how many copies of like spawn of mayhem are they running which is like a big mirror breaker card that started becoming more popular when mono black was just the tier zero. And right now, maybe Spawn of Mayhem is less valuable than some other type of card, maybe some other kind type of interaction that they can play main deck. And so these decks in this format are still in the churn mode. And I think Dave's right that mono black is one of those flexible decks with recursive creatures that if you're relying on sweepers, you're not going to have a very good time. So I guess what we're saying is look for aggro to maybe make a, a stand next week, especially if Niv uh, loses a little bit of popularity and John Aristocrats fizzles a little bit, would be my guess. All right. Thanks, guys. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, as, as Niv falls, aggressive decks can rise. And I think sort of Niv is like the slightly slower or the slightly faster version of a true control deck, right? So Niv is interacting with your creatures as it sets up its creatures that are that can block and attack and true control decks are sort of saying like i'm going to try to point removal and then sweep and that's where decks like mono black or or red if if you're sandbagging a few of your creatures in hand something like that can really have an edge magic 101 <laughs> from shane stan we just went through a whole bunch of decks and pioneer anything catch your eye catch your fancy is something you might look at over the next week or so you know, I do like tinkering with Aristocrat Styles decks because, like, it's a lot of clicking and maneuvering, but it's not like this, like, the type of clicking you have to do when you execute an annoying combo. You know what I mean? Like, it's it's more along the lines of like pulling knobs and switches and being a mad scientist. So, so, so that does look kind of fun. But I'm not sure I'm there yet from just these challenge results. I still need to look over the league results to see if there's anything in there that looks 
you know, interesting to me. I just want to play tempo. You know, I think that's really kind of where I'm at. Like, I like playing tempo and I kind of like playing certain mid-range strategies and Niv is not, Niv is not that for me. Too greedy. Too many colors. You know what? I'm going to suit up the next time I play Pioneer. You know it. Guess it right now. Spirit still, right? Or or Boros Feather. Oh yeah. You still love Boros. That can be a very fast deck. Yes. I'm keeping an open mind, but... That does wrap up our breakdown. We're going to take a quick break, and when we return, we are diving into Double Masters. The cards, the decks, the finances. Stay with us. All right. So Double Masters, glut of great reprints, made us think about doing a financially focused episode for the first time. And magic's expensive, right? Like we just, none of us can really deny that, especially playing paper. It's just an expensive game. But one of the things that we do know, and I think a lot of people know is there is a lot of ways to build your collection in more cost effective ways. And so what we wanted to think about is how to sort of get around the fact that magic is expensive. Thinking about one of the best times to buy cards that you've been looking at for a while, looking at especially things like reprint sets and figuring out what makes sense for me to move in on and when and how long can I wait. Thinking about what options do sort of thematic reprint sets, like Ultimate Masters was essentially Graveyard Masters. Double Masters is essentially Artifact Masters. What does that give us options and opportunities to think about in terms of decks we've been thinking about but not building? You know, thinking about ways to save money when we're buying cards with that maybe involve some effort, some ways that don't involve effort to play for free or play test for free or at least cheaply. So there's a lot of stuff to cover here. Um, but I think that we all have a lot of experience buying and selling cards, unfortunately or perhaps fortunately. So I think it's just going to be a good conversation between some magic plan friends about thinking about how we, we approach magic finance. Yeah. A couple of other things that we're going to hit on concretely in this discussion. We do have a section in here. We're going to talk about double masters itself, the decks that were impacted by double masters and how you should think about this particular set. If you're thinking about buying some cards, it's a weird time to be thinking about buying paper cards because Nobody's playing paper right now, unless you know you're doing it socially distantly with maybe one friend, not going to stores or anything like that. Uh, the other thing that we have in here, or that we should point out, is that this is mostly going to be from the perspective of modern, because yes. you know some of our buying practices are impacted by Pioneer. But there's a lot of discussion in here that's really modern focused because that is a much more expensive format. So just keep that in mind as you listen. Yeah, and as we'll talk. Double Masters is really primarily a modern reprint set. There's not a lot of cards that are super appealing for Pioneer, unfortunately. And, and thankfully, Pioneer is just a little bit less expensive format. Yeah. I mean, it's basically modern and EDH, right? Which we should talk, we'll talk about that a little bit as well, but. Yeah. Some other caveats. Um, any any cost we mentioned, I don't think we mentioned a ton, is going to be taken directly from Goldfish, MDG Goldfish. Uh, and they appear to use TCG mid prices for their paper and card hoarder for online. And again, we're going to be primarily focusing on paper and not magic online, because that's probably more directly helpful to more of our audience. And honestly, we do believe that the rental services like Mana Traders are 
super cost effective and really low hassle ways to play online. Can we talk about Goldfish a minute before we get off of that topic and just how useful their prices actually are really quickly? Not very. Okay. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately. I mean, I'm not trying to like they do. They're, they're mostly accurate. But the thing you have to keep in mind is that TCG mid is sort of not a real price in a lot of ways, because the venues that you can actually buy cards from generally use something else. They use TCG low, they use above TCG high if you're buying from a, a retailer. So keep that in mind. It's based off of their platform. Also, Goldfish sometimes has weird spikes. And when you see those weird spikes that happen on Goldfish, it's because of bad data from TCG Player. It is not it's always indicative of what's going on in the market. So just keep that in mind as well. All right. So we can't really deny the fact Magic's expensive, right? Like the average price of the top 12 Pioneer decks is like a 400 bucks. And the average price of the top 12 Modern decks is 750 And that is not cheap. That's like, that's a lot of video games. It's a lot of board games. It's a lot of movies or eating out or supporting whatever other hobbies or interests you might have. You know, that's just a lot. Of, that's a lot of dough. So when you compare that to Magic, things can get crazy fast. Like, you know, conceptually, you can sell your cards eventually, right? But even the relative stability of modern, maybe kind of pioneer, which is a little bit less stable, uh, it doesn't really mean you're going to have the time to take to sell someone your cards, to buy a list your cards, and you're likely going to take some potential financial loss in the process. So I, I personally think that buying magic cards with the idea that you're eventually going to be able to sell those cards and recoup your costs is pretty hard to rely on. Um, and it's also just kind of hard to make yourself give up those cards. Like if you have, like I have a bunch of fetch lands, right? And if I sell some fetch lands, I'm cutting off the ability to play any deck that runs Verdant Catacombs, right? I'm cutting off the ability to play any deck that wants Bloodstained Mire. And that's rough. We're going to talk about this, I think, in more depth later. But I think the big point here for me, Shane, is just trying to remind people that you're, you're, you're trying to give people a little bit of a conscience to be like, hey, um, Let's get real. Let's get real. You're going to keep these cards for the most part, or you're going to recoup not a lot of the value from yeah. them. And I think that's fine as like a starting point to the discussion. Sure. Like we talked about earlier, I think the the main point of this conversation is talking about reprint sets, because that is the best time for eternal players, because that's when magic goes on sale. And, you know, we mentioned Double Masters inspired us to make this episode because we, or at least I know me and Stan have, we've been buying some freshly reprinted format staples because people are opening these these packs up and they're moving those cards that they don't want. But Dave, are you buying anything right now? It's tough. I'm really pretty heavily committed to Moto right now, though I do have a large paper collection. I don't have a lot of time to go play in person. So even non-pandemic. So I'm being pretty judicious. Uh, I do have a list of cards that I'm interested in from a couple of archetypes, but nothing major. Yeah. So when we look at this the set, you know, it reveals a lot of high value and kind of all around good cards for modern. I don't want to go through every last card, but, you know, we get things like Stoneforge Mystic, Jason Mind Sculptor, Adnaz, Death Shadow, Thoughtseize, Blood Moon, Noble Hierarch, Manamorphose, Karn... The Swords, Trinisphere, Worm Coil Engine. Oh, is Trinisphere in the set too? I didn't realize that. Okay. People get, you can finally get your Black Bordered Tron lands if you want them. Yeah. And I have. For Pioneer, we do have fewer staples. You can't win them all. But let, let, what I wanted to do is let's look at some of these price differences between some of these staples pre-reprint 
from the last set they were printed in, and then the exact same card in Double Masters. So Masters 25, Jace, 85, Jace is now 65. Death Shadow from Master 17, 8, now it's 4. Noble Hierarch, 25 bucks, and Ultimate Masters, 18 bucks now. Don't forget, before Ultimate Masters, at its peak, Noble was $80, because his last reprint was Masters 15. Yeah, I bought the Ultimate ones for 40 I think, and was happy about it. Yeah. Blood Moon, 15 to 9. Stoneforge Mystic, 40 to 27. Even Manamorphos was 10 bucks for an un- uncommon from Modern Masters, and now it's 4 bucks. So you get the idea, right? Like the cheaper cards in the set are about half off of some of the older printings, and even the more expensive ones are still about 25% off. And this, listeners, is almost always the time to strike because for a while after a reprint set, comes out, prices are going to be at their lowest for variable lengths of time. Like the less in demand a card is, the longer the price floor is going to be. But I think one thing we all know about Magic is that cards very, very often are creeping their way back up close to that reprint price or even beyond if a new deck emerges that the card's in. Yeah. I mean, Saffron Olive has written from Goldfish has written a number of articles about the pricing floor of reprint sets. And I think the original time he did an analysis about this, he pegged it at about 60 days is kind of the floor before things start to go back up after reprint. But it is getting shorter because people are becoming more savvy. And also it seems like more people are buying expensive reprint cards. So there's more demand at this point. Yeah, it's really interesting. Like, I think the thing we can we can point out the most for that is like the Master Seventeen Fetchlands had like a price floor of like four days. That's wild. Do you know what I mean like they 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 dipped they dipped a good amount for like less than a week and then they were climbing like crazy and those were rares, right? Just because the pent up demand was so high, and I think we'll talk a little bit about what pent up demand how that can inform choices that you make when a reprint set drops. What are you buying? Stan, I know you're buying some some cool stuff. What are you buying, Stan? Yeah, so I'm buying a couple things. I finally decided to put together Mono Green Tron, like my forefather Shane before me. <laughs> uh, I'm also picking up cheap goblin guides because they're so cheap. Um, the goblins really because I found them at my local game store for six bucks, which not only feels like a steal, but they're essentially the last piece I would need to play Modern Burn. I thought that would be nice to have in my back pocket. Reminder, Goblin Guide used to be a $40 card. And I think before this reprinting, we didn't mention it in our line items above, but I think it was at least 20 before this reprinting just now. Even really? The, it's the been, 17 I, I one thought it was, was more like 14 bucks. Yeah, that's I think crazy. Because Burn is up. not exceptionally popular right now. But it's always a deck that a lot of people like playing, right? So around and then likewise i decided to finally buy tron because although i haven't played the deck since our dive onto it which is like more than a year ago i really loved playing it and moreover i really love and part of the appeal for me is that it doesn't share cards with other decks that i play and i've sort of been at this point for the last month or so where i'm basically romanticizing this idea of having a sleeved up 75 that i never have to move around and kind of just keep it in my modern gauntlet as this deck that I can always grab. So that 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 feeling is worth hundreds and hundreds of dollars. Yeah, it is. Yeah, that makes sense. I'll tell you, there's nothing worse than having a collection the size that I do and realizing you only have one deck. <laughs> because you're like, well, I guess I can put all my 
bolts and this and that and my lands in this deck and then left over is nothing once i finish building four color shadow so i i feel that i'm also at the point where i own a lot of the other meaningful reprints including stoneforge and jace and shadow and i've basically likewise decided that i'm really not interested in putting together decks like humans or or whatever decks dark confidant goes into these days not many so those pieces in particular are not a big draw for me also Humans was a deck that I was definitely looking at trying to buy after this, but it turns out I think the only card in this set that's really any money in humans is uh, a meddling mage. Noble. Noble. Oh, Noble. I forgot. I already have Noble. So Noble is big. You're right. You're right. But it's still not a drastic sale. I mean, as we'll talk about later, it's the lands, baby. Yeah. They call that a tease. Jane, what are you getting? I'm kind of getting just some odds and ends, like some stuff I sold off at a decent price a little while ago. And I'm now like, it's so cheap, why not? Like Death Shadows and Mishra's Bobble and Metamorphose, because I sold off like three of my four of those. Even some Vegvines. Like Vegvines was all Vegvine was always one of those mythics that was too expensive and it would spike up like crazy anytime I was doing anything cool. And now I can just grab some for like four or five bucks and just like have like, you know, a $15 playset of Vegvines for the next time it does something cool in a graveyard style deck. I'm looking at ad nauseums and I've got a few. And then I was like, oh, wait, that's not even the expensive part of ad nause. It's everything else. Like all these packs are super expensive. Like just everything is expensive in this deck. And I didn't even realize it. But I'm still thinking like I'm still targeting ad nause as just like a potential increase in cost. So maybe, I don't know. Yeah. But I'm not looking, I'm not getting stone forwards. I'm not buying the swords back. You know, they're, they're expensive. I don't really care about that style of deck and I'm not getting another play set of dark confidants, Dave. Don't worry. Hey Dave, quick question. Yeah. You've, you've known Shane for the better part of a decade now. (laughs) The better part of like three decades. Yeah. Four decades. Actually almost four decades. Yeah. At what point did you think you were going to hear Shane say I'm buying ad nauseums? Uh, I knew when we were, reading Calvin and Hobbes books in third grade that one day he would look at me and say, I'm buying ad nauseums now. This is my life. I'm, I'm so shocked, shocked and impressed. Like when Shane said once upon a time that he's thinking about like picking up humans, I was like, that checks out. But ad nauseum, a combo deck. That's, that's, that's more of a financial speculation to be honest with you. I just kind of thought the rest would be cheaper. Mm-hmm. Um, Dave, I've been reading, I've been reading Calvin and Hobbes with my nephew, by the way, it's a lot of fun. Yeah. I read it with my son whose fish just died too. Uh, hmm. God. Uh, anyway, let's talk about the magic cards I'm buying. Yeah. Yeah. What are you looking at, Dave? So I am looking at kind of like filling in some holes in my collection in a sense. So I would just be getting like maybe an extra Jace because I have two Jaces. So maybe it's good to have a third Jace occasionally. Jace the Mind Sculptor. Um, getting more swords. So, you know, I have the green black and I have the blue red sword. So I might get the black white one, uh, engineered explosives, voice of resurgence. Did you guys realize that voice of resurgence was shifted down to a rare in this set when it's always been a mythic before? Oh, wow. I didn't actually notice that. I think it's always been a mythic. I, I don't think it was downshifted in 17. And then I would be looking at just grabbing meddling mage since I already own vials and nobles. And Ensnaring Bridge is the other main card that I would be looking at just in case I ever decide to get Etron of all things. Oh, God. So some other stuff that we've, I think we've all talked about most of these, but some things that I was looking at that I would suggest targeting soon if you do not own them already. This is, this is my financial click to pick. Um, get some fatal pushes. 
I mean, if you play modern, you probably own these, but it's like they're like a buck. Meddling majors are like two bucks. Death Shadows are four bucks. Engineered Explosives are four bucks. We've kind of talked about a few of those, but man, these are cheap cards. Like Engineered Explosives, like a fifty dollar card. Yeah, I paid fifty bucks for it once. I don't even remember why it spiked up to that point, but I was like, well, seems important. I guess I should have it. So take my money. It was kind of like Mishra's Bobble when like people were like, oh wait, this card is really good, and we haven't been playing it for some reason. We're going to talk about that card more later, but you should definitely buy those. <laughs> get Manamorphos and get get Mishra's Bauble. I'm a little bit less sure about Manamorphos at four. Like I think some of these cards could keep going down, but maybe grab a Batter Skull, like 11 bucks, 10 bucks. I don't know. Yeah, but listen, Manamorphos is going to be a $10 card again. Now, I'm not saying you should buy it just to, to spec it, but like if you're going to play Manamorphos decks, it's $4 is plenty cheap enough to make the, get the card that's the engine for it. Misha's Bobble was reprinted in Iconic Masters and went down to what, like $4 and was all the way back up to $11 again recently. So I think it's just a card you have to buy. It's going to go down and go back up again. Yeah. Hopefully what'll happen from this set is that it doesn't go back up to $38 on Magic Online again, but... Yeah, I mean, that's hopefully an advantage, right? Because that this is not being drafted on Arena. This is only going to be drafted on Magic Online. So it should mm -hmm. impact the price. I mean, the supply, which then will impact the price. So we talked about like price floor having some kind of duration. And I think there's some, there's a few cards we didn't talk about that I think while they're still expensive, I think likely have a pretty short floor and are going to have a pretty short sale period. And I think it's the, like some of the good swords like Fire and Ice and Feast and Famine and maybe Stoneforge along with them are cards I'd be looking at because people like playing that card and those decks. Thoughtseize is just a multiple format, four of in a bunch of decks. So you're always going to play four Thoughtseize almost. You know, and it's in Pioneer and Modern. Yes. I To underline Shane, if you do not have four Thoughtsies and can do it, now is the time to buy it and ever want to play it. Now is the time to do it. Like I said, I think Mistress Bobble and Metamorphose will be between 8 and $12 again at some point within two years or a year. So don't miss out on being able to pay for one of them for the price of four, basically. Yeah, at the same time. Jace on a little bit of a sale right now. This is a card that I never think will be like a $50 card. I, I feel like Jace is always going to be fairly expensive. So this seems like right up the alley of the short floor category of cards. Same for Trinisphere. The Double Master version hovering around 18 bucks when we put together notes usually goes for around 30 um, because this is pretty much the first meaningful reprint of that card. So when you have such a relatively small supply, I, I can see this card going back up eventually if not soon yeah i mean before we go on to the last kind of things that we have to say about double masters at least in the context of competitive modern one thing i just want to say really quickly is keep in mind that the reason that reprint sets work is because of the beautiful partnership between edh and competitive eternal formats okay it lets them make a set where they can put a bunch of cards in that everybody wants, all kinds of different players, and some of them are super valuable, like Force of Will, that you might not ever want if you're a modern player. But if you still open one of these packs and get a hold of it, you can trade it or buy list it or something like that to people who want EDH cards. And so that's the way that you know those some of those cards hold their value for a really, really long time, like Mana Crypt and Force of Will and stuff like that. And that those are... Inclusion of those in sets like this make the modern staples go down even farther. 
And so it's important that both of those things are present in sets like this. And it's part of why they can't just print a ton of modern cards into sets like this as well. Just a little parting thought on EDH plus modern being like that meme of the two hands uh, wrestling or clasping or whatever. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about like the actual decks that are getting coupons in Double Masters because, you know, to your point, Dave, our beloved modern format is seeing a lot of sales right now. Yeah, I mean, in my mind, there are three decks that are the big headliners for for ones that are getting a bit of a discount right now because of reprints in Double Masters. The first one, the biggest one, is the one we already talked about a minute ago, Mono Green Tron, right? Stan mentioned he was buying into it. Almost the whole deck of pricey cards is reprinted in Double Masters, including Walking Ballista, Worm Coil Engine, Karn Liberated, in Snaring Bridge, if you need that for some reason, um, Ugin was just reprinted in Core 21. Stan, thoughts? I think the funny thing about Tron, this is a totally meaningless aside, with the exception of Ulamog and Emrakul, you can literally use 2020 reprints for like the whole deck. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Every, I mean, you got the chromatics, you got exhibition maps, you got the ancient stirrings, you got the, you got the uh, sylvan scryings. Mm-hmm. So much. I've been telling people for weeks also to keep the Byler Ulamongs if they wanted to play this deck. So Yeah, and that is just worth mentioning really quickly that that's going to be the price sticking point now. Weirdly, a battle for Zendikar Mythic is now the price sticking point in Tron, but it is what it is. That's an important thing I think we should mention briefly, right? Is like some modern and other eternal formats have this tendency for if certain cards get reprinted, they'll go down. But then the cards that are now seen as the issues, the hard cards to get will frequently raise in price. So some things like uh, Emrakul has had a steady price increase. Things like Ulamog have had a steady price increase over the past months because people, one, are identifying them as lower and lower supply. Even though they're recent prints, they haven't had reprints. And so this is now the, the bottleneck that people will identify. Santa's holding up these cards that he probably he probably paid ten dollars more than when i told him to buy yeah i got these ulamogs heavy played from the star city game sale it was like buy one get one free that's amazing you know the the reason that what shane is talking about happens i believe can't confirm this is anecdotal is um you know when there is an increase in supply a number of people decide that they're going to pick up the deck now a lot of the people who have the deck already they don't sell out of it so that's why those cards that aren't reprinted go up in price. It's pretty, pretty simple. It's happened in a bunch of times. One time to think about recently that it's happened to is like when Azusa was reprinted and Valakut went up in price basically because people wanted to play prime time in modern. Uh, Azusa is a key card in that that was expensive. It goes down, but the demand for uh, Valakuts goes up. Another deck that's getting some coupons, one that's near and dear to my heart, blue, white Stoneblade. Yeah, this one was interesting because it was not the first thing I thought of when I looked at the list of cards, but then I realized how many pieces there are from it. That's right. Not only you get Stoneforge, but you get all the swords and Batterskull and Jace the Mind Sculptor. Um, even like Blood Moon plus Jace, like you can play those in Blue Moon decks as well. Yeah, and so both of those decks I think are getting a little 
bit of a reduction right now. And actually, both Tron and Blue White are worth mentioning in this bracket because they get a significant reduction because of a factor we're going to talk about in a minute, which is that their mana bases are not incredibly expensive either. The last deck that I thought was interesting that seemed to be one of the most uh, going on sale is Grixis Death's Shadow, which because of Thoughtseize, Mishra's Bauble, and Death Shadow itself is getting a little bit of a discount there. Unfortunately, this is one of the ones where the lands are not helping you <laughs> really at all here, but a number of the staples from the deck are getting pretty cheap as a result of this set. Yeah, some less notable decks that are having a little bit of a sale because of just you know one or two or a handful of expensive cards being reprinted are Ad Nauseum. Thanks to the namesake, Ad Nauseum. Man, that's, that's barely anything, though. It's a problem. Yeah. It's still so expensive. Likewise, so expensive. humans seeing a couple of reprints in the form of Noble and Meddling Mage. Burn, Goblin Guide, one of the most expensive pieces in that deck, with the exception of the lands. Also, Etron, thanks to Walking Ballista, Worm Coil, and Snaring Bridge, and some other pieces for Karn wishboards. And of course, the deck that Dave loves more than his co-hosts, Prowess, which is getting Bobble and Manamorphose. Two of the most expensive cards in that deck, believe it or not, are Bobble in some builds and Manamorphose in some builds. So the next most expensive card in deck, non-land card in that deck after that is uh, Soulscar Mage, I think, actually. Man, that's wild. Yeah. All right. So look, here's the real deal. When we started putting together this episode, we thought we were going to be able to talk a lot more about the impact that Double Masters was going to have on Modern. But here's the thing. And I'm sorry we have to bring this up. Yeah. Nothing in modern will be truly on sale until fetch lands, particularly enemy fetch lands, are reprinted enough to get somewhat cheaper, quite a bit cheaper. Um, I was stunned recently when I saw that Verdant Catacombs was $70 a piece again. Yep. Um, and then, of course, what goes in with this is, is caverns. So individual cards in Double Masters are good deals. There's like, there's no denying that. It's nice to be able to pick up a tier one deck, Green Tron, for $550 instead of $750, which maybe it was three months ago. But for most decks in Modern, we did a little analysis, and half of the cost of the deck is made up of the lands. So the baseline for a reasonable Fetch Shock mana base is at least $300 on their own. And in many cases, it's a lot more, right? Like if you're trying to play three, three color deck and you need a bunch of different fetches and you need a bunch of different shocks, it goes up from there. So I even did a little bit of a table here just to say, give some comparisons. So Prowess is like a $500 deck where $375 of it is land, basically, especially if you're playing Scalding Tarn. You can find another land to play other than Scalding Tarn if you want, but if you want to play blue, blue, red, for example, that's what it is. Uro piles are around $1,200 right now. You know, your Sultai Bant Uro decks, they have $572 in lands, according to Goldfish. Blue White Control is a nearly $1,000 deck, $925. That one only has about $225 in lands in most of the builds, which is why we could confidently pull it out as a deck that's on sale because of Double Masters. Gruel Midrange, $550 with $285 in lands. Jund is $1,300 with $560 in lands. And Titan is $700 total with $350 in lands. Most of that is Cavern of Souls. So TLDR, if you're looking at modern decks... Just be prepared to spend half the budget on mana. It, at least half. Sometimes it's more. Yeah, it's, it's rough because then 
you do find people saying like, I can't really buy into what I want to in modern right now until these enemy fetches come and Watsy keeps sort of hinting that they will arrive, but not how and not what quantity. And so it's, it's people are in a tough spot if they weren't buying in right when they were reprinted in masters 17, like three years ago. And they still have to spend a lot if they did that. Yeah. I mean, one of the, it's it's hard, you know. I I just feel like this bears mentioning here is like if you can manage it when they do get reprinted to finish your full set, you don't have to think about it for a long time again, depending on how far they go down. You know, um at one point I mean Shane said that the price floor was pretty low on some of the um some of the fetch lands after seventeen, like it was a short amount of time. But, you know, I think I got my Verdant Catacombs for like forty a piece. And now they're 70 a piece. Like they were more than 70 a piece before when there was only the Zendikar ones in existence. So I would just try to think about it. Like the way to build a collection in modern does involve thinking about when, what decks you think you're very likely to play and when you want to buy fetch lands, unfortunately. But we still can make some good decisions now, even though lands are expensive. If there's decks you've been waiting on, if there are decks like Tron that don't run expensive lands, but run other expensive pieces that are now a lot cheaper, there are opportunities to be had and methods for saving money in reprints. But I think what's interesting is there are also other ways for saving money in playing Magic. This is when we kind of, I think, will escape from the orbit of double masters. And I think we can talk a little bit about other ways that we look at saving money, if you can call playing magic saving money at all. Um, so, you know, you can say things like, yeah, it makes sense to buy cards after they're reprinted, but like we were just talking about, what about all those other cards I want to buy that aren't reprinted recently? What about the Ulamogs? What about the Emrakuls? What about the fetch lands? And I think some of us, primarily Stan and myself, are, are pretty good at finding deals on our paper cards. Whoa, 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 whoa. What, what are you trying to say? I'm saying that I think that you value your time more than the 10%. Yeah, I mean, it's something people have to think about, definitely. So, you know, let's let's talk about some of those ways. And I think Stan and Slav and I both use these. Uh, one thing that I use a lot or used to, when I'm, when I'm actually buying, when I'm buying a lot, when I'm looking to buy some key pieces, especially more expensive pieces, like let's say, let's say you want some Euros right now, right? I'm going to go to Facebook first. Euro is one of those like high, high transaction quality cards. It's a recent print. It's a card that people have a lot of, and they're probably moving them fairly often. You can go to like a Facebook buy, sell trade group. The usual going rate at Facebook is like 10% below TCG low which is already typically the lowest price on the internet. And you can get, get some pretty not great sellers at the very lowest rates. And the people on Facebook frequently have lower prices than that and frequently have higher reliability and higher reputation. And I'm going to talk about that as a really important thing because you have to pay attention to the people, the private sellers that you're transacting with. Wait, did you just say that people on Facebook have more reliability than people on TCG with low transaction value, low transaction yeah, numbers. Cause, yeah. Cause what can happen? Like anyone can open a, a store on TCG player. Right. And so you can see, you'll sometimes see stores and I'm not saying that every store with low numbers is bad. Like a store might have 45 sales because they're just a private small volume 
seller like me. Like I could just open up a store and say, hey, buy my cards. You had one at one point, did you not? Well, I got a small collection through a store I was like affiliated with and I was just helping them sell the cards. And so I sold like 80 cards on TCG Player. Missed that store. Yeah. So you you really want to be able to verify that any private seller you're interacting with is reliable. And people frequently will have like large reputation threads on Facebook and they can point you to other people saying like, yeah, we had a great transaction. You might want to ask them to demonstrate the cards exist. Like show me a good photo of the card. Like if a near mint to a seller might look like lightly played to you, right? Like I'm pretty, I'm pretty uptight about when I'm buying a near mint card. Like I don't want scuffs and scrapes and nicks, right? But so get a good photo, make sure it's clear. That's also going to verify that the card probably is in the seller's possession. And finally on Facebook, uh, I would suggest using a payment method that has buyer protection. Like if you're selling via PayPal, avoid things like friends and family, like just eat that fee as insurance for yourself, unless you have really good reasons to trust the seller. Because if you send friends and family and that card never shows up and that seller disappears off Facebook, you have no recourse. You're just, you're out the money that you sent. Yeah. You just have street justice. (laughs) Just yell at the cloud. Shane actually asks sellers how many megapixels their camera have. Yeah. It's gotta be at least 14. Stan, have you ever bought on eBay? I have. So I've been burned on eBay where I tried to get some some cards and then I got counterfeits. Uh, and I think that's one of the beautiful things about eBay is that they have great buyer protection and they take counterfeit product of any kind super seriously. Likewise, I've had really great luck on eBay, either bidding on cards or using the buy it now feature. I think eBay kind of helps toe that line between a TCG player and Facebook Marketplace just because it is an actual e-commerce platform and you get like some of that buyer protection built into it. But you might not get like some of the same discounts that you might from an individual buyer that you find through a Facebook group. One of the things I think too, that's a good way to save some cash and also have some fun is trading. Like you can trade at your LGS. There are other ways of trading. Like people do trade on things like Man, what's what's that store that site I used to use? Oh my gosh, I don't use it anymore. Puka Trade? No, Puka was sick. You got a lot of cards from Puka Trade back in the day. I I built back when Puka Trade was new. I did. I built my entire peasant cube out of it almost, and that was pretty awesome. Um, I really, I honestly can't remember the name of that site. It's like a price inventory site that also has trading built into it. So people are probably shouting at the their radios right now, but you can trade online. You can trade at your LGS. It's hard right now because paper magic isn't really a thing, but people have binders of cards that are looking to trade into cards that they want. So every paper MTG player, I think should probably have some kind of trade binder that they have with them because you never know what someone wants that you have. And that could be 50 cents, it could be 50 bucks. So in Chicago, very few LGSs are are doing in-store events, thankfully. But we have these regional Facebook groups, like I think there's one that's literally called MTG Chicago Region or whatever that's got thousands of members. And in the absence of LGS events, we still have people in that giant group being like, I'm looking for these things, willing to trade stuff, and they'll post pictures of the cars they're trying to trade. So, you know, if you're in a community that doesn't have a great LGS presence or, you know, an area that doesn't have an MTG community, you can start looking for those things on Facebook, uh, maybe even other social media channels to find people who are willing to trade digitally. And then maybe you have to meet up in a Target parking lot or trust the mail. Can I mention, like, we don't have it in the notes, but I'm also a fan of Craigslist. Man, 
How? How does that work for you? Okay, so here's my system. I don't know if I've ever shared it with you guys in detail, but you, I went on Craigslist. I typed Magic the Gathering into the search bar, and I clicked the button that says sort by date, and then I copied that URL because that URL has all of those like search preferences, and I saved it as a bookmark in my bookmark bar. And literally once a day when I wake up in the morning, I check my email, I maybe check social media, and then I check Craigslist to see if anyone's posted cards in the last 24 hours, and that's it. And maybe I'll buy a card from there like once every few months, if that. But it's kind of like uh, an alternative to the Facebook method. You know, whether you're using Facebook Marketplace or Facebook Groups, like people locally will just sometimes like sell collections or they may be more, uh, you know, embedded players like ourselves that are saying selling singles that kind of know their value. I would say also, though, do not fall for like magic collection. I just found these in my attic and I'm going to sell them. And like they might have like, oh, there's a duel in in the photo because those are almost always scams. So just, you know, be be thoughtful, be smart. Dave, can you talk a little bit about buy listing? Because I think buy listing is one avenue that you have used for generating value out of cards and turning them into cards you want. Yeah. I mean, like Shane said, I think when it comes down to it for me, like I do value my time a lot. And so, you know, buy listing in case people aren't familiar with what that is, is where you sell your cards to one of the major online retailers for a posted price. You can go look at their website and see what cards they're buying. Generally, they're buying lots of cards. It just depends on how much they're paying for them. Um, and then most of the major retailers, Channel Fireball, Star City Games, and Card Kingdom and others, they offer you a better rate for trade-in than they do for if you just want cash. And some of them are a lot. So the thing that I've done over the years is trade cards that I don't want, that I pull out of random booster packs in for store credit to be able to get the cards that I do want. I've done this a ton of times. I've processed a couple of collections, my old collection that had weird cards that were great for EDH that I would never use any anymore. Um, the big thing about buy listing, okay, is that it's a great way to get rid of one-off cards that you're not going to complete play sets of up to a certain value. I think that once you start talking about really expensive cards, you're probably better off looking for a different venue to trade with. But on the other hand, it depends on how much you value your time. Like maybe you're okay only getting $36 for that $50 card because you didn't have the hour and a half to find somebody, email them a bunch, send them, you know, get an envelope, put it, put the card in the envelope, get the check, like all that kind of stuff adds up. And if you're busy, it's tough to do that. The other thing that's extremely great about buy list is that they will buy commons and uncommons and other random things at really high quantities that you might not be able to, you definitely won't be able to do with people who want to build their own collections, right? It's so for example, I had a lot of old cards from when I played in the nineties, right? Just big boxes of commons And one day I just went through and cataloged everything and was like, let's see what are commons from visions worth right now or whatever. Like I looked at the common buy-in list and I think I found like 25 query on Rangers that card kingdom bought off for me, bought off of me for $4 a piece plus trade in value, just sent them all in. 
I mean, there, it's a popular card in EDH. It's never been reprinted or has been reprinted very infrequently. And so that turned into a whole bunch of, of stuff. And I just added it onto another buy list that I was doing. So it's a good way to like boost up your buy list when you, that you do with people with cards that you wouldn't be able to turn into anything with anybody else that are still valuable. You know, I'm talking cards like Crypt Rats that at the time that I did it was like $3 a piece or $2.50 a piece. Lightning Bolt is a card that you can trade in for money still. Ponder, Preordain. You know, if you want to talk about cards that are more recent, you can buy list cards like Wayfarer's Bauble and Shadowborn Apostle and things like that that are just like, there's there's not a ton of these cards, but if you have a box of commons, you could go back and look and go, oh man, I have like seven Shadowborn Apostles. You're never going to finish that deck. Like just buy list it to somebody. So I think it's a good way to drive up the value of an order that you're already doing. I also think that buy listing personally is the best way to get rid of mid-level foils, which like nobody ever wants. So you're going to have a hard time finding that person who's looking for that foil for their EDH deck, you know, and even some high-end foils, it's really hard to get rid of because people aren't necessarily looking for those unless they're really looking to put together a an EDH deck that they're trying to to bling out and occasionally a competitive modern player. And so, you know, when I found myself in possession of a foil Kamigawa Kiki Jiki that spiked in value to like $500 or $400, I buy listed it because I didn't. Now you can do that on the Facebook groups and get a whole bunch of cash. Probably if you want to deal with all of that aspect of it, but I got almost the same amount in trade and I was still, just going to use that to get other cards so I could immediately flip it and turn it into other cards. That's an important thing about buy listing, right? Is that you get typically a, a good percentage higher. I, yeah. I mentioned earlier, but I don't think I specified the, the percentage. Most of the major re- retailers offer you an extra 30% when you're, when you're doing your trade in. Yeah. So I I've also buy listed a, a decent amount in the past. And sometimes like the buy list is so high that it's better than selling it. Like sometimes you can get Certain stores will give you, you can almost have arbitrage like opportunities where it's like the TCG low price is, let's say five bucks and they're buy listing it for like 520. And if you really wanted to be crazy, it wouldn't last for long. But like, it's just like, well, why would I not just buy list this? It's, it's better than selling it on a marketplace. Yeah. I mean, look, there are many people and many well-worn articles out there of people trying to explain like the idea of actual MTG finance stuff. There's like the gross MTG finance stuff. And then there's the people who work really hard buying these giant collections from people and turning them into the most value that they can. A lot of those people rely on outing large quantities of cards to buy lists to make it work. And some of that is arbitrage. Some of it's also just putting the time and effort to sort, grade, condition, and send things out. So, but I think for most people, you can get good trade and save some time and just make it a lot easier to expand your collection. I feel like there's some other advantages working with some of these le- like really legitimate, very established vendors that are doing the buy listing too, right? Like instead of paying the absolute least amount and spending a lot of time hunting for things and working with individual sellers and trying to get the best deals, like there's a lot of advantages for, let's say, working with a any number of vendors, Card Kingdom, Channel Fireball, Star City Games, uh, Troll and Toad. I don't know. There's just, there's so many of them. Yeah. I mean, I, I should be clear. I buy almost all of my cards from vendors like, like this. Most, some of it is because a lot of my cards that I have, I have turned from buy lists 
and store credit into the collection that I have. But also, I don't want to deal with a a random seller on TCU player who has an email who has a mail get lost. You know, like I don't want to poke around and have to deal with like five, 10 different people to try to collect the cards that I want to make a deck. I just want to go to one place. I want to put my deck list in. I just want to buy it. And that's really what the major retailers offer you. They offer you cards that are in really good condition. They sell them really quickly. Or sorry, they ship them really quickly. They tend to get, to get them to you as fast as possible. You don't have to look a ton of different places. I mean, there are off often places run out of cards that are on in high demand. So sometimes you have to go to a couple places to get everything you're looking for. But usually one place will have 70% of the cards you want. Yeah, and that reliability matters. I mean, we've talked about this, Dan, where, you know, sometimes if we want to order a card not from a private seller, we'll be like, well, I can get it in like three days and I know it's going to be the condition I want if I order it from X vendor and X vendor could be any reliable name, right? Like I've ordered so many lightly played cards that come looking pack fresh. Like I want to save 75 cents and it's like, what are you talking about LP? This is beautiful. Like this is, this is like I opened it. I do buy a lot of lower graded cards from, from stores like that. You're totally right. Um, the other thing I would say is like, and I don't want to talk bad about LGS because I do play in them sometimes, but the inventory at LGS can be spotty and like surprisingly so sometimes. And so even if I go to like my local store, which is a very nice store, um, they might only have one of a card and I want four and I'm glad to buy the one from them and then buy the other three from online. But a lot of times if I'm sitting in my house, I'm just like, you know, I actually will buy sealed product from my LGS a lot more than I will from the major retailers, even though it's more expensive, and then buy singles from the major retailers because they have the inventory. It's just it's just easy, right? It's just it's just easy. And your time is valuable. I mean, I think sometimes people forget that. Anyone's time is valuable, not just people with kids, not just people with, you know, 60 hour work weeks. Your time is always has a cost. You could be doing something else with that time. So Trying to min-max every purchase you make is not always the best thing to be doing, even if you're saving, let's say, five bucks. Yeah. I mean, I don't even know if I want to say it's the best or not. It's just not what I do. Like, this is just what I am capable of doing in my life, right? Like, I buy, I, I buy from these retailers because they have the cards. The, the last reason that I buy from these retailers a lot of times is because they support content creators that I like and care about. And that's a weird thing. It's sort of a second level thing. These are also people that I can and do support on Patreon. But like sometimes I buy cards from SCG because I just spent a lot of time watching an SCG tournament. And I know that they lose money on those tournaments. Those tournaments are giant ads to buy cards from them. So I'll go buy some cards just so that, you know, they can afford to have commentators going forward and actually want to do the shows that they do. As much as I love like scouring Facebook and 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 Craigslist and of course my LGS, like yeah, I do this thing with retailers too. Like if I can't find new double master Carnes, I I'll probably have to go to someone big. I'm curious, do you guys do this thing I do where it's you open up like four, you have CFB, SCG, Card Kingdom, and like Troll and Toad up at the same time, and then just like put in an entire like list of cards into each of them and just see where you can like actually min max across these retailers? Or do you just make the decision like today I'm buying from SCG, I don't care how much I can save if I go to Card Kingdom or whatever? I've done that with buy listing. Like typically I buy list at two places because I've worked with them and I find them reliable and I will, I will compare them when I'm buy listing and then I will send like 
I might send one package to one place, one package to another. Can I ask you what the two places, or tell you the two places that I do that with for buy listing? I'm going to guess uh, CFB and CK. It is not CFB. Oh. I, I sell to SCG and, and mm. Card Kingdom. I've never sold to SCG. Now, the reason that I sell to SCG sometimes is because they buy foreign cards many and pay extra for them. Sometimes other people don't. And so I've had different points where I've had a lot of foreign cards in my collection, but I find that SCG will just buy random cards that other people don't quite often. Um, I do use CFB kind of as my third choice for buy listing. And it's for a similar reason. They often have are willing to buy obscure cards that other people aren't like two years ago. uh, CFB was paying a ton of money for, like alpha commons. Okay. And so I was looking at that where the other retailers weren't paying for it. So you do have to look out for slight differences in what their buyers actually want. Um, on the buying side, I pretty much just buy from card kingdom. If I'm just buying cash, unless, like I said, I was just watching SCG or CFB and then I'll maybe do a purchase from them if I'm thinking about it. But mostly I just find card kingdom to have the best, most reliable stuff. And so I just, that's just where I go first. So we we talked a lot about kind of how to buy cards at you know in, in vaguely smart ways as much as spending money on paper card games can be. I think we're we have one thing we didn't talk about, and I think it's actually perhaps more important than just buying cards at a good price is buying the right cards and buying cards that make sense for you to buy. And I think buying a deck without having played it is kind of like buying really expensive shoes or like a suit without ever trying it on, right? Like it might not fit quite right. It might not be exactly the style that you were hoping for. It might not be like you. And I think magic decks can be a lot like that, but you don't get like the Zappos return policy, right? Like it's not, it might not play like you wanted or be as powerful as you hoped. And now you're stuck with these cards. And you're either going to keep them, you're going to sell them, you're probably going to take some kind of loss from selling them, or at least lost time. And so I think there are ways that you can play test a deck for free, or at least cheaply, that's going to save you more money in the long run, because you're not going to buy things that you don't like. You're not going to end up stuck with something that you're not even enjoying, which is definitely a bad investment, right? And I think you can avoid that by playing a deck on Magic Online using a rental service like Mana Traders. You can proxy a deck up in paper and play it with a friend or even play it with yourself, like solo. Just play versus yourself. Have just two decks out and test them out. You can play on like a quasi-legal surface uh, service, rather, like X-Mage or Cockatrice. I just want to say, I think that the, the main point that Shane is talking here with all of these outlets, though, is like, do the work before you you buy expensive cards yeah, it's 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 so fun to buy stuff like i totally understand like that retail therapy like i i've i've done it more than once is like it's going to feel cool to have this deck done it's going to feel fun to chase these cards down and then it comes and ultimately these are playing pieces and if you don't use these pieces if you don't enjoy using them then it's not really great. I mean, you, if, if you're a collector and you engage with a game that way, that's sweet. Like if you're a collector and, and you like doing that, but we're talking about buying cards for play here. And like Dave said is, yeah, like just do a little bit of work up front. And there's two things you're going to get out of that is you're going to understand the deck more when you're playing it 
Like once you have this set of 75 cards and you're taking it to the LGS, you're going to be like, yeah, I play tested this a bunch and I liked it and I have some reps with it and I'm going to probably win more with it. Like that's really good. Yeah. I mean, one thing that's interesting is that you are both people who bought into Grix's Death Shadow, (laughs) right? And bought into it got it and played it a couple of times and said, no, this is, this is the, that's, that's the poster child. I think for like the high power level, intricate play lines that not everyone's going to love. Yeah, Dave. And I'll have, you know, I still have Grixis shadow 75 sleeved up that I will periodically pull out against certain players, like either at the LGS or in casual matches. All right. Well, you don't have to defend yourself, but I I just remember both of you were kind of like, well, I did this, but I don't really love playing this deck. It's like, you know, try to not do that if you can. (laughs) Yeah. I I think it's, it's just smart. And honestly, like I said, I think it's just, it's something that's going to make you better at magic in general. Like the cards don't make you good. The playing makes you good. So if you have ways to play that don't involve spending a bunch of cash on paper, then it's probably you're better off in the long run, especially right now, because it's like we don't really know when paper is going to start up. So unless you are really thinking you're at a great buying opportunity, it doesn't make sense to really buy a ton of decks right now. Listen, Dave, in mid-2019, I was co-hosting this little Magic the Gathering podcast called The Dive Down, and we decided to do a, a deck dive on Mono Green Tron. Little did I know, yeah. after a league or two, I would love it. And for years after that, I would consider myself a Tron player, even though I would never pick up the deck. And I think that's enough reason for me to buy into it. I do not question that decision at all. Um, I have a question for you two. Do we want to consider saying anything about proxies, proxy printing, or do we want to skip that? Well, I think that's that's kind of, I mean, proxying can be in a couple of different ways. Like one can be just writing on a pile of basic lands, and two can be, like printing out a bunch of pages of proxies from like an online proxy maker, cutting them out, putting them in with your lands and having kind of more easy to use versions of your cards. And then there are kind of the really not super legal ways of purchasing proxy creations, which might be beyond the scope of our episode. Okay. Fair. Um, are there any other ways that you guys like to play test or have play tested besides magic online? And kind of like the online services like X-Mage or Cockatrice. So before I bought my very first modern deck, which was, is it Storm? I watched a bunch of streamers play it just so that I understand what it looks like, what it plays like, and kind of what it takes to be good at it. So even though at that point, you know, for whatever reason, I didn't have the capacity to like proxy it or play it online. um, I still kind of wanted to know what it looks like when the deck is actually in action. Yeah, I think I do that more than any of these other things testing before i have something it's either i'm playing it on moto or i'm watching streamers play it here's the problem when when someone goes like 50100 (laughs) you're like oh this this deck is gas i'm gonna be so good with it and then when you actually play it you're like oh the world is real i mean that's why you have, have to actually watch the video and just not look at the tweet you know what i mean like that's that's the difference yeah i think that kind of gets us into our next section that i want to talk about which is like the financial trap cards And I think that there are a few sort of financial traps. And one of the ones that I fall into the most is buying due to FOMO or buying into hype. Like you see a tournament stream, you see a streamer doing awesome with the deck. And before the match is even over, I'm like buying 
some of the cards I don't have, right? Like, or like when Pioneer started up, like I, I was super amped and I was fearful that prices would be like rising dramatically across the board as people bought into Pioneer. And that certainly did happen somewhere in some cards, but the the sheer quantity of Pioneer cards that are out there made the bottlenecks that we talked about earlier less frequent. So, you know, I wanted to get almost every deck I could even though I knew I couldn't play all these decks because one, I don't even go to the LGS that frequently, like a couple times a month. And you know, that's just a bad idea. Like not every deck's going to be successful. Not, no, not, not all of these early uh, decks. Like remember like blue, white tempo, like blue, white, like with uh, um, Archangel Avacyn or something like that, or just, you know, there's a lot of decks that it's a fun deck. Wow. Blast from the past. I real I actually did really well with that deck and pioneer when it started and then smugglers copter got banned and i was like oh yeah i mean that's the kind of thing it's especially in a format like pioneer where they they said out like you know overtly hey we're gonna ban stuff <laughs> so what it made even less sense for me to buy all these decks right and while some of my purchases did raise in value a lot more of those purchases went down all the while just sitting in my deck boxes sitting in my collection boxes and so i think like Buying it just because you're fearful of losing money because a card's going to spike, I think in the long run, you're going to end up spending more than you need to and losing losing money because the cards that you buy go down. Yeah, I mean, something that is similar to this is um, pre-ordering cards. Yeah, been there. Right? I mean, you got to be careful with pre-ordering too. Um, you know, for every euro that goes up after the set comes out there's 20 busts of gideon planeswalkers that went from twenty dollars to one dollar uh, other than ally of zendikar that was absurdly expensive while it was in standard but another story um it's just hard to predict what's going to happen after after sets come out nothing's really a sure thing and then sometimes things get banned you know i bought preset up i i bought presets pre-order sets of underworld breach uh, once upon a time, um, I have inverter that I never got to play. I mean, these are all cards that I have for various formats that are just gone right now. Um, which like it is what it is. I mean, fortunately, none of those cards were too super expensive, but it's, it's kind of a bummer when that happens. Well, you can have hits though, right? I mean, yeah, I will say there, I do have a caveat as far as pre-ordering goes. I just stay away from pre-ordering marquee cards from the sets and wait for wait to see where those goes especially go especially mythics um but honestly i think if there's a mythic that you think is good that's like one to three dollars it's okay to buy a play set if you want to i just wouldn't fall for the ones that are like 10 or 12 dollars that you're not exactly sure if they're going to be great or not um you know that's tough but like rares that i could get for a dollar that i think might be good i i will not hesitate to buy a, a set of that just because it's kind of convenient. I know I'll have them and then it is what it is. I mean, cards that I've gotten hits like that on are like Arclight Phoenix. I bought for $2 a piece originally. I mean, I know they're a lot less now, but I bought those pre-sale Colgan's command. I bought as a pre-order for a dollar a piece. I think Hangerback Walker. I bought as at, right after the pre-releases because people were talking about it for a dollar a piece. It's a little harder to time these cards these days but it's it's just something to keep an eye on like what happens right at pre-release time and dollar or two dollar mythics i think are always worth 
keeping an eye on. I think we got to talk about packs. We got to talk about buying packs, buying sealed product. Financially, not the best idea. Fun wise, sometimes a great idea. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, I feel like I'm the only person on this on the show who rolls up with just like a box of we'll just go and buy a box of cards and like sit and watch TV and open cards. True or false? True. Oh, I've no, I've definitely I have I used to buy more sealed product, like a lot more. Yeah, but now that but like in the last four years. No, I, I bought I bought a box of Theros Beyond Death. Oh, okay. I also bought a collector's booster box of Theros Beyond Death. Ooh. Um, I thought that uh, me and another guy on the Slack, um, we were, you know, he was like, "Hey, if you want a box of collectors, I got a, I got a pretty good price on them." I was like, "Yeah, those Theros ones, those are worth a lot." I mean, I'm sorry, the the Throne ones, those were those are some good value in there. Uh, it wasn't a great financial purchase, but it was pretty fun to open some some sick sick cards out of there and a lot of duds. That was more of the problem there. You didn't get that showcase Uro, huh? I did not. Yeah, I mean, I I just like to do it, so I just do it, and it's a way for me to support the LGS that's by me or whatever one I want to do. So those, like I said earlier, that's when I'll pop out and just like go buy a couple boxes of cards and just enjoy it. I mean, but Stan, you, I I have seen you post like a Walgreens pack open or a Target pack open. That's my jam. Like if I'm at the general store and I can just grab a booster with my twelve cases of toilet paper. <laughs> Why not? Because that's where you're making the real money. That's right. <laughs> that TP flipping, TP arbitrage. Yeah, and, and yeah, I mean that's that's really all it is. It's just like kind of a fun extension of the game where you're like scratching off a lottery ticket that you can sometimes actually play with. I don't know how people like sit on booster packs though. Like I, I have some friends who will like hold every booster pack they get from every price pack ever until we do a chaos draft, and I just do not understand that level of restraint. <laughs> yeah, that's tough. I definitely used to do that until I realized that stuff tends to go down over time. And then I just started cracking boxes. Like I happened to open, for example, I had a couple of boxes of uh, conspiracy. The second one land before time. Yeah, exactly. It was just waiting to do conspiracy drafts with, with you guys. And it never came up. And I was like, I better open these before these Leo, something happens to Leovold. And I managed to get to and buy list them and then move on before they crashed in price. I think we would be a little remiss if we didn't mention some other budget MTG resources that either we use or or even respect. Yeah, Magic doesn't have to be expensive. I mean, we're talking about these $750 decks. We're talking about these $400 decks. And that's not everyone's reality. That's right. And there's one, one that we really know well, right? In particular, Stan? Yeah, exactly. So friend of the show, Emma Partlow, writes a weekly article for TCG Player where she primarily has been focusing on budget modern decks, even taking like tier modern decks and putting a budget spin on them. Likewise, Emma and her co-host Scott have an awesome podcast called The BM Cast, which does stand for Budget Magic. Scott's Irish, Emma's British. Amazing accents, really fun to listen to. Not just for the content, but for the personalities on the show. Yeah, one thing I like about what she does is she provides guidance on growing that deck. It's like you could start at a budget version and then you could, if you like that or you know that you like the deck and want to work your way up, giving kind of guidelines on like mid-tier and then like the fully built out version, which I think is smart and nice. 
Yeah, and of course, you know, we mentioned MTG Goldfish and Saffron Olive, but uh, he has this regular article and video series related to specific budget decks. And rather than taking tier decks and making them budget-friendly, he'll actually brew new budget ideas that he thinks are tapping into something powerful or underappreciated. And in some cases, I've seen this happen in standard or other formats where he'll brew up a budget deck and it actually takes off and becomes a a format staple and then becomes more expensive over time. So keeping an eye on resources like that might actually help you be ahead of the curve. Stan, I know that you are pretty thoughtful about your magic budget, right? Yeah. So, you know, I'm I'm glad I get to share this because, you know, people who know me you guys as well like i have a pretty big magic and modern collection like i could roll out maybe four or five top tier ish decks in modern right now but you you have been slow to build that up like i know that just from watching you you're like i'm i only play is it decks because i spent my money on scalding tarns so like you know you've you've been thoughtful and not really reactive as much as i am yes times have changed a little bit but the way i've always kind of approached you know magic as this growing collection and and a hobby that expands over time is that this is the one aspect of my life where i'm actually able to maintain some kind of budgeting practices so i wish i had the discipline to like be better at budgeting in terms of like going out buying backpacks listen every backpack is necessary shane every deck of stands (laughs) is in an individual backpack an individual backpack that's worth more than the deck (laughs) It's, it's got, this boy buys Arcteryx. This is my Stoneblade deck. You know, this backpack has a little hole where I can stick the cable for my headphones. Um, but yeah, the way I do this, and like I've done it a couple times this year even, the way I bought Ponza was I would just set aside like 50 bucks a month and that would be my budget for singles. And like everyone might have different budgets. Like for some people, it might be 25 bucks. Other people, it might be 100 bucks. But like I have found that it actually doesn't really take that long if you have a budget and you do some of this like min maxing that we're talking about, including trades, including buy listing, including like scouring Facebook groups or Craigslist or eBay for deals. Like you can build a deck in under a year and like, you know, maybe three or four months by just budgeting, you know, gradually. And, you know, even like expensive pieces like fetch lands that, you might have to like wait a couple months before you buy your fetch lands just because it could take like a two month budget to get there, but we get one of them. Yeah. Yeah, that's for sure. But I think ultimately like the lesson I learned over time is that even though card spikes do occur sometimes overnight, like let's not pretend that doesn't happen. It, it tends to be less likely that a card just like drops significantly in price overnight, unless maybe a reprint is announced. The key that I like that I've learned and I want to share is that card spikes are not only rare, card increases in price are pretty gradual. So even though maybe if I bought a playset of Karn Liberated today, like it might be the lowest price I'll get for them this year. If I got that playset in like three or four months, I might only be spending an extra 10 or 20 bucks, if that. And that's kind of like this notion of fear of missing out or FOMO that we kind of talked about. Unless you're ready to like play this deck this week or next week, there is a certain you know uh, virtue in in the patience of putting it together over time, as well as like knowing that there's a responsible way to do this that it's not necessarily worth bankrupting yourself because they'll still have value and you'll still be able to like put it together at a discount, you know, given enough time. 
And yeah, and imagine that all that time while you're saving up and buying pieces of it, you're playtesting it in proxies or you're playtesting it on Magic Online through a rental service or, you know, or with your friends on it's just written on lands. And then when it's done, you're like, well, sweet, I've played this deck dozens of times and you're good to go. Yeah, I don't do that. I wouldn't recommend that. I would just I would just buy the deck set unseen, but take three months to do it to each their own. Yeah, I think that's smarter. I think it's smarter to to do that rather than be like me where you're just like i need this now and i'm afraid that it's going to go up in price and ultimately i have a bunch of cards that i am probably not going to play and it might be because i think the deck looks cool or because i think they're going to go up five bucks and it's just the losing battle last little thing that goes with budgeting think about how to stretch your dollar right buy cards that are think about cards that are staples that go in multiple decks and focus your money on those and if there are pricey tech cards in the uh the deck that you're looking at doesn't happen quite as much as it used to in modern but there were times where it would be like there's one crucible of worlds in the sideboard and you're like oh that's a 60 dollars card okay i guess i need that take it take it easy on sideboard cards that and stuff like that that are expensive like Get the main deck, get other cards that go in other decks, and you can figure it out if you're going to if you're going to a GP, you know, or something like that. Or like, do I really need four surgical extractions when surgical was like a fifty dollar card or something like that? Exactly. So that's our take on MTG Finance. We did it, guys. Massive brain dump about buying cards in a time when no one can play with paper cards. But hey, that's a buying opportunity. It's a buying opportunity right now. It's free real estate. <laughs> I do like though this the the FOMO conversation does take us neatly into a wind down question. So let's get out of this section and I'll see you both in about fifteen seconds. All right. We're back with the wind down. First time we've had some time for a wind down in a while. I guess we kind of had a, a faux wind down just last week, but Alec asks us a good question and it is, how do you deal with FOMO fear of missing out as it relates to magic? The summer has been incredibly busy for me and us all in different ways. I'm sure I haven't had much time to play two to three years ago. I could leave modern alone for a few months during my busy periods. Now everything feels like it moves so much faster, which only heightens my FOMO. How do you guys feel about this? My answer is, is an insight into my life and it isn't exactly magic related, but you know, once upon a time when I was in my early twenties, I was a little bit of a socialite. I would go out, out a lot, go to concerts, bars, parties, what have you. And I, I really had like, like it wasn't a condition by any means, but like I, I genuinely had like a fear of missing out on like social experiences or memories or, or what have you. And I, I had to work on that. Like I literally had to like specifically develop this tendency to remind myself like you don't have to have this fear of missing out. And it was something that like took a little bit of practice and 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 like self work, as I said. But it's then spilled over into my magic life. So in some cases, like magic taps into some of my worst FOMO habits. Like, you know, when Double Masters reprints, like I'm like, okay, I, now's the time to buy Tron. Though I also try to balance that with like some of my budgeting and, and min-maxing like habits that we talked about throughout this episode. But I think it's really a matter of just sort of like 
reminding yourself like what your priorities are in, in a moment and weighing that against like the value that magic adds to your life. And if you're busy this summer, this year, whatever, you know, working a couple extra jobs because times are tough, like in the long run, that's going to be so much more meaningful to your long-term, sus- you know, sustainability and, and health and mental health than like beating yourself up because you don't get to play in a magic tournament online or whatever. Incredible. <laughs> I mean, I think this is, it's a great point, Stan. I don't know if I can really build on that other than to say that I generally feel like everyone should who experiences a lot of FOMO should try to deal with it in a holistic way in their lives because I do think it it it's the type of drive that leads to not great decision making. And so I definitely try to as Stan mentioned too, I try to be sensitive to when I'm behaving in a way that's just because I'm afraid of missing out on something. It's rough. Yeah, I've I've made decisions, you know, even just recently where it's like my 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 friends are doing something and we're gonna go do something outside. They're part of my, you know, my inner circle. And it's like if I don't do this, then that's like one opportunity, what a rare opportunity I have to like to see these people, it's not gonna happen. Right. And so it's like I'll 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 join up even if it's going to take up most of my Saturday or something like that. And that means I'm not with my, my wife potentially. It means I'm not at home with my cats. I might not be doing something that's maybe a more valuable, valuable use of my time. And I think that like Dave and Stan were, were getting at is like, it's, it, it, it pays to kind of like look at what's driving that those feelings and what's driving that fear. And I think when, when it relates to magic, I think you're like, well, I'm not playing this game that I have told myself that I really like paying attention to. And I've spent a good amount of money on in order to play it. And other people I know might be playing more than I am, or there's tournaments going on that I don't have the time to watch on the weekends. And I can't listen to all the podcasts that I like because there's a lot of good magic podcasts. And you're like, I'm falling behind in some way. And I'm falling behind on a hobby that I am interested in and aligned with. Right. And I've definitely been there. I've definitely been times when it's like, I've only listened to one podcast this week or, and I haven't played magic in like a week and a half, even like a, a casual match here. And it's like, well, what am, what am I missing out on here? And I'm, am I, and, and that feels bad. Right. But I think what's good about magic, it is a 30 year old game, right? Something like that. 20, it's a 27 years old, I think 27. The game is always there and there are good ways to re-engage with it quickly. And while the metagame is quick to change, as Alec has, has mentioned, there's still Mono Green Tron. You know, there, there's still Grixis Death Shadow. There's still Azorius Control. There's still Valakit decks. And while pieces of those decks may change and entire new decks may exist, it's not like it takes a lot of time to figure those out, right? And like we talked about this episode in terms of pricing, it's not like if you didn't buy into your Karn Liberateds at $25 that now they're $35 and and you're never going to buy them. Like maybe it costs you a little bit more money, but you spent that time doing something else and it was probably valuable. Yeah, yeah. I, I was able to pay my mortgage. That's a valuable thing. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think that 
it, it does stink to have to make decisions because we're all busy people, especially as you know, you could be, you could be a busy young person or a busy old person. I was just thinking, yeah, as you get older, things get more busy, but there's plenty of busy younger people right now because life is freaking busy. I was going to say, I feel like you should never feel bad that your priorities have changed a little bit, even if it's changing away from something you enjoy a lot, because you can always find a way to make your way back. And so I feel like some of that fear of missing out is guilt about there being a disconnect between the things you think you want to do and the things you think you have to do. But sometimes the things that you want to do have just changed and that's okay. They'll, you'll get more space for magic again when you have time. Yeah. I mean, we, I play less than I used to now, but I engage with the game more because I'm doing this pod with you. Do you know what I mean? And that also is like a social outlet, right? I think it's like you said, it's like, it's you can engage with the game in a variety of ways and whether that's as an active player or a passive participant or the fact that you're doing something else doesn't mean that you like the game less it just means like dave said is perhaps there's things that you can enjoy in equal amounts or greater amounts and that's an opportunity yeah and you don't have to by default not enjoy things you have to do you know the you want to be in a spot where you enjoy the things you have to do and the things you want to do both <laughs> Yeah. I mean, that avoids burnout too, right? Like that's something we hear a lot from, you know, younger players, grinders who they're just like, man, I spent two years doing this and I am burnt out. I got to go do something else. And, you know, being moderate in, in the things that you enjoy and the things you participate in and is, is probably healthier in the long run. And of course you can always catch back up by listening to dive down or any other podcast that you like about magic. I mean, that is something that's great about magic is that you can enjoy it passively and, if you don't have time to play it actively. So there you have it, folks. Magic can be fun. That does wrap up our show for this week. If you haven't yet, make sure you subscribe to our podcast so you get the latest episodes as soon as they come out. And if you use Apple Podcasts, please leave us a rating and review. If you'd like to submit a question to the podcast or pick our brain on something in Modern or Pioneer, you can tweet us at the dive down, all one word, or email thedivedown at gmail.com. If you'd like to support the show, you can join our Patreon. Find that at patreon.com slash the dive down. Also, shout out to manatraders.com for sponsoring the dive down. If you sign up for Manatraders using promo code the dive down, all one word, you can get 20% off your first three months of renting Magic Online cards. As always, special thanks to the bands Nowhere and Spaceblood for letting us use their music. And if you're still listening, don't forget... This weekend, if you follow and retweet our announcement on Twitter for this episode, it'll enter you to win a VIP booster for Double Masters. That's worth about $100. Get foil cards and then buy list them if you don't crack open anything that you want to play with. Until next week, get out there and save some money!